0: and welcome to The Mariner. So for you, this will sound pretty similar to other podcasts I've made, but from my point of view, it's very, very different. I'm here in Nova Scotia and living about 30, 40 miles away from the coast now, a little bit of elevation where we are and living in a very rural setting and uh, have been completely snowed in for the last three or four days. The weather has been... Pretty hard here in the last week, but uh, it culminated in a storm that went through through in the last uh seventy two hours and uh just slightly north of here in Cape Breton um, they got hundred centimeters of snow, which is like just over three feet of snow in those couple of days now we're not beset by that, but we've got about half that maybe, and of course with the wind it drifts and makes life very very difficult so I've been struggling not only with uh, keeping the driveway clear and doing all those kind of chores which we're pretty set up for here but also that at the moment I'm acting as a solo parent because my partner Kat is away on a contract uh, in the US and uh, it's my first time ever looking after Isaac our two-year-old on my own so lots of challenges there lots to learn and also her first time away from Isaac since he was born so Difficult for her, difficult for me, difficult for Isaac probably to work out exactly what the new rules are. And then this added uh, difficulty of um, the fact that as I look out of, the, out of the front door now here, I've got snow piled up on either side of the front door like a, a metre uh, high um, from what dropped last night. So interesting times. I've also started to realise just kind of how similar... Solo parenting is, no, not just realised. I always said, I'm sure that having a baby is the same as solo sailing, but I didn't know that because (laughs) I didn't have a little one at that time. I had uh, a good idea perhaps of what could be the challenges, but it became um, very, very apparent once we had Isaac and we made the choice that we wanted to raise him. He's only ever been looked after by us or his grandmother. found out very quickly what the level of responsibility and um, effort is required if you make the decision to look after a little one on your own. Um, I don't wanna go on and on about solo sailing uh, when we're about to start talking about safety and all the rest of it, but um, if, uh, if you haven't had that experience or if you have a partner who looks after little ones while you're out doing your thing, it is a huge amount of work. A huge amount of work and for someone who is very happy to do large amounts of work at sea and all of the complications that come with that having to know how to fix everything having to know how to keep the ship moving forward how to keep the crew myself happy um, that is all applicable to solo parenting the sleep deprivation is absolutely it we've got a two-year-old he goes to bed at seven o'clock at night and he sleeps pretty well for a little one, but he wakes up at 4.30 all the time. And I know what sleep training is and we've done sleep training and we have got him through to point now that he wakes up at 4.30, has a squawk, and then we'll go back down in fits and starts to 5.30, but there is no way to push him out any later than that. He just doesn't seem to need it. So sleep deprivation um, and the, the complications that come with that are are very prescient in in my mind, um, as I as I try to make my way through the landscape as a uh, as a, a solo dad, but only thank goodness for for a week or so. You know, it's um, for some people it's it's years and years of it, and I, I I wonder what the effect on people's mental state, emotional state, physical state is when the only person you've got to talk to is two years old and is still in the babbling stage of uh, their language development when the responsibility you have to them is 100%. And to step away from that responsibility is extraordinarily serious. Um, That you can't obviously you can't say, "Pooh, this is a difficult day. I'm just going to take this one off." That's not possible. And in that way, it's very similar to being on a on a boat on your own at sea. You know, you can heave too, but in the end, you're going to have to do something about it, right? You can ignore a job, but in the end, you're going to have to do something about it. You can ignore the flooding, but in the end, <laughs> as the water comes up around your chin, you're going to have to do something about it. And that's very similar to little one. So, um, for anybody who's looking after a little one or has done in the past, um, thank you for your service. Uh, For anyone who's doing it right now, if you want to write to me, um, I I understand the nature of the problem and I will uh, (laughs) endeavor to uh, give you a a shoulder to sob on (laughs) if that's what's required. But uh, because I'm literally walking around my living room here with a boom mic on, I thought about just doing a a chatty uh, podcast um, as I've done before. I think I'll get round to that, but it's such a new format. Normally I'm sat like in a studio type arrangement here, made here in, the, in, in our home and then kind of looking down the microphone and a little bit more focused. The difference today is little Isaac is down to sleep. Um, the snow outside is such that I literally can't risk being in a situation where, well, this is how I take it. And you can call me a fool if you want. I think I cannot be in a situation where I separate myself from him in any way that could possibly result in something untoward happening. The path from the front door around to the studio is super treacherous. And if I was to slip or have a problem, even though I've got cleats on my boots and even though there's salt down all the rest of it, if something like that happens, uh, what happens then? We have a two year old in a cot and I'm outside with a broken ankle. Like, how exactly does that go? So my natural kind of. Um, conservatism in this situation uh, leads me to think that the best idea is to sit here in the next room with the baby monitor here and talk. And if I put a book in front of myself before I do it, then uh, we have probably got ourselves a much more safe situation. So we are going to be talking about Abandoning Ship, the continuation of the brilliant Sea Survival Handbook by Keith Colwell. I've got about uh, an hour or so until he wakes up. So let's let's jump in and uh, see what we can make of it. So I would like to just point out for those who haven't necessarily twigged on this book is available from the Royal Yachting Association um it's uh filled with brilliant uh diagrams and uh, and drawings and everything to to back up these points that we've been going through if you haven't already have a look back through the podcast library here and we go through life rafts and abandoning ship and life jackets and buoyancy aids and Cold water immersion and psychology of um, psychology of survival and everything is in this book. I think uh, put this by the toilet, put it by the heads on the boat and you've got yourself a real resource. And if someone picks up a few things, then, uh, then everyone's a winner. When I had the clipper boat going around the world, um, we photocopied pages from books actually about rigging uh, like rig and sail tuning i think it was another rya book and uh, laminated them in color and then stuck them on the walls of the toilet and it was amazing how people would say you know in, in a like a trimming nighttime, the a long way away from the toilet type situation like oh yeah i read it on the walls of the toilet it's one of the reasons why safety information uh, the safety cards, which have all the info about flares and communicating with aircraft, and all that kind of stuff from the Marine Coast Guard Authority in the UK, um, they're so often on the back of the head's door because it means that with nothing else to read in there, those is, like, I guess, in a time before mobile phones, but um, with nothing else to read, you end up reading something that's useful. So here we go. There can be no two words that can set more dread into a skipper's heart than "abandoned ship. The decision to leave your vessel should not be taken lightly. Don't leave your boat until your boat leaves you. It is packed full of supplies and useful equipment that will aid your survival. Okay, so just how many pages we got, i I'll make sure, don't wanna make sure I, I blame me, I can't edit this, so I've gotta <laughs> got be careful with what I say. I don't want to get into a situation where I stop every five seconds because I want to kind of move through this relatively quickly. Let's see how many pages are. Oh, no, this is a really long chapter. Well, this might be in two parts. All right, whatever. Let's just get into it. We'll have some fun with it. We're doing an hour. And if you have to do two hours, uh, you know, over two podcasts, that'll be fine. Um. I've never had to abandon a ship. I have spent a night in a life raft as part of a charity gig in the UK. Um, I can tell you all we did as skippers was jump off the wharf, swim about 20 yards out to the life raft and clamber aboard for for the cameras. And then we poked our head out and we, you know, pretended to kind of like be in a life raft. And then after a little while, everyone kind of milled around on the dock and then left because what else was to do like watch a life raft with six guys in it like for the next 24 hours completely silly great for a charity gig and we made some money out of it but uh afterwards we all said it to each other we should not have we should not have swum out to the life raft because although it's a lot more realistic compared to the kind of situation you'd get into in a life raft the fact was we were doing it for charity, we had jobs to get back to, and we all got very close to the outsides of hypothermia doing it it's uh not nice, but it's not like it's a warm, cozy environment in there and we were in a happened to be in a twelve man life raft, and there was only six of us, so there was a lot of space um <clears throat> a lot of uh space to heat up with our bodies and it was pretty pretty darn miserable. Have I been in situations where I thought I was going to abandon ship yes i Yes, I have. We can talk about that maybe a little bit later on. It's actually one of the um, previous podcasts early on. I've just gone through and kind of relabeled all of the podcast titles to try and make everything a little bit more succinct and understandable. You'll see now, if you go back to the like first 10 or 20 of the podcasts, There are ones that that their main heading is sailing solo around the world. And one of them is me in the middle of the Atlantic on the last leg. I think it's called Voyage Home, that episode. And it's me uh, in an open 60 in the Atlantic and a lot of water comes in. I'm talking like thigh deep in a cabin that's 20 foot by 20 foot, uh, 20 foot wide on those open 60s, 20 foot long in that main section of the boat and thigh deep in water. And uh, I thought I was going to have to abandon ship, but, but didn't but um, the, the words, as it says here, is don't leave your boat until your boat leaves you. Um, another way of putting that would be uh, step up into the life raft and to, to kind of further underline that I've been working on an emergency flotation system for boats for years. And actually that makes me think I might just do a podcast about that because the likelihood of me ever translating that into an actual product after I can remember, I thought that up in 2007. I know where I was, I know what I was doing. So we're now what, like 16 years and God knows who's been in all kinds of issues that that system could have saved. But, uh, the whole point of that, emergency flotation system is that the boat would float basically at the tow rail, that there's water inside the boat, but the deck is there. And there may be a possibility of fixing the boat and getting it to to rise back up to its normal waterline and get on with your voyage. But the, the key thing being that even if you're on a vessel at sea, which has flooded to the point where it's to the tow rail, on deck, like it's a wash, it's a half-tide rock in the real sense of the meaning, it's still better than being a life raft. So uh, yeah, do not get into the life raft until you absolutely have to. It says there are two main reasons to abandon ship. Number one, if your boat sinks. Number two, if your boat catches fire and the fire cannot be controlled, that's a lot more likely probably than the boat sinking. Or three, if your vessel vessel suffers a catastrophic keel failure and capsizes. And perhaps that reminds me to to chat a little bit about the, the loss of the Cheeky Rafiki, a boat that went down in, I believe, 2016. Um, I actually, I met the guys that were on board that boat very briefly in passing in Antigua. At, I think it was race week in 2016. Their boat's name is still up on the joists of the galley bar down there in um, uh, ship dockyard in, 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 Antigua, Nelson's dockyard, and um, their, their boat rolled over in the Atlantic. So let's see if we can uh, talk about that later on. Um, If there is no grave danger of the boat immediately sinking, then stay with it because it carries far more supplies than your life raft. It will probably offer better shelter from the elements, even if it's virtually a wash. You may be able to find a way to jury rig a repair and improve your conditions. And it makes a much larger target for rescuers to see compared to a life raft. A huddle of survivors, a single person with a life jacket and or a damn boy or a person without a life jacket. Did I read that right? Yeah, I hope so, yeah. It makes a much larger target than any of those things. Okay, so I I guess I was sort of shipwrecked a bit Uh, years ago now it was 20 no it was two the year 2000 so either the very beginning of 2000 or the end of 1999 i was down in australia with my partner at the time katie and um we had driven from perth in western australia all the way across the nullarbor desert uh, towing a catamaran a little hobie 15 on the back of the uh, Subaru uh, little uh, Outback wagon that we had. Not Outback, what were they called back then? Sport wagon it was. Brilliant little vehicle. And driven it then down to Melbourne and all the way up to Sydney and on our way up to Brisbane. And specifically, kind of, I had been uh, aiming for a little group of islands that's just off the coast of uh queensland um i read about them when i was like 11 years old i went to boarding school for a, a, about two terms when i was 11 years old and i chose to go the school that i was going to in the north of england the lake school at that time i, I don't know now what it's uh what it's like but at that time it was pretty rough and uh you know people are like nipping out through the windows in uh, the big opening windows we'd pull the curtains a little bit and then you'd slide behind the curtain and you could virtually get out the classroom every time without the teacher realizing and we're like 12 at this point and then go off and have a smoke um kids were shouting and brawling with the teachers which you know at that time when I was at school which would be I'd be 11 then so it's like 88 89 that was kind of unusual I can remember being at the the next school I went to uh, uh happily talkie boys grammar school in the UK and the the teachers there were still at a point where, if they had the parents' permission, they could still cuff kids round the head. So it was quite quite a long time ago. Um, and uh, the boarding school I went to was Lancaster Royal Grammar School, and it was absolutely, completely, utterly bloody miserable. It was the most Dickensian setup. I, I, you know, as a child, you don't really recognise it, but uh, it it was really very, very awful. And um, I had was reading in the evenings this uh, this book called uh, The Swiftlet Isles uh, by Neil Porter. There you go. That's not bad. I can still remember that. Um, and I was completely beholden with this book. It was absolutely brilliant. It was about a, a boy in the 70s, uh, maybe 16 odd years old, who uh, convinces his mother that he's going to go on a kind of junket up the coast um, hitchhiking, which I guess in the 70s was feasible and uh, for a child to do and he he sets off but really his intention is to run away from home so he said to her like I'll go for five days and then or whatever it is and turn around and come back but of course he knows he's got 10 days until someone's going to say anything so he shoots up to Townsville in Queensland and he knows that that is directly across from the Swift, what he calls the Swiftler Isles, which are actually the Walker Island group, which um, includes the the big island is called. Oh, man, I can't remember what the big island's called now. Uh, oh, I'm going to mess this up. In the book, it's called Biagura, which is the, the, the name of it in the original uh, indigenous language. And uh, <clears throat> his little island is called. Oh, no. What's it called? I'll think about it. It'll come back to me. I haven't had to think of it for years. But um, basically what I was doing later on at 20 is I thought, you know what, I had found out that those islands really do exist. So I decided with this little catamaran in Perth, Western Australia, we're going to drive all the way across and sail in all different places that we could get to on the way. Obviously not much sailing in the middle of the the middle of the outback or the middle of the uh, Nullarbor in the centre of Australia there is the cliffs are like 200 metres down to the water and it's it's a desert. But uh, once we got across to the eastern side of Australia, there was all sorts of sailing. But long story short, I can tell it another time maybe if you want me to. Um, we ended up on this catamaran uh, out on these islands, which are about, well, I don't know, like seven miles offshore, something like that. It, far enough that you know it's pretty it's pretty serious if you come off the boat and we had gone over to the nearby island to Biagura, which is the uh, the big island the the island that I'm thinking of is where a guy lived and wrote a book called confessions of a beach coma does any does this make any sense to anybody um, brilliant book it's about a, a guy who went to live on this island and lived out his life there um, basically with the indigenous people in, in like the 1920s or something and it's because of that book and because it's so beautiful it's become a bit of a tourist resort so we were on a small island that's nearby in the same island group and it is oh the name of the island in the book was tulgar and i think that the islands the tulgar island is called walker island and the name of the island group is Mm, No, still haven't got it. Okay, so we're on our little island with nobody on there, and we decide to sail across to Biagura, to the main island, um, and go and uh, get a drink. That was the whole thing. It was all about the fact that we were going to have this mission to go and get strawberry daiquiris. And we sailed across, no problem at all. But as often happens in the tropics, when we attempted to sail back, the wind completely died. And that was the exact same moment we realized there was a lot of water in one of the hulls. And then the hull sank. So you're on a catamaran now where one hull is floating and one hull is underwater. And I had to make a decision. Um, what am I going to do here? Am I going to disconnect from the myself and, and my partner, Katie, from the boat? Are we going to try and swim for it? Like, where are you going to swim to? It's the middle of night. There's no moon. How, how are you going to do this? Or am I going to stay on the boat? Well, we'll just get swept out by the, the, the tide out through the barrier reef into the Pacific. And that's the end of us. So I was in the middle of the night thinking about the fact that we'd be a very small target, just the two of us treading water. or We're in our life jackets, but you know what I'm saying, sort of sitting there. Or do we stay with the boat? And I split the difference. And and I had a life jacket on, which I'd been using as a um, kayak instructor, which has got a, a waist belt, allows you to tow other kayaks. Well, I put a rope onto the half submerged catamaran. I'll never know exactly how much effect I actually had on the movement of the boat. But <clears throat> I guess enough because we towed it. I towed it uh, swimming breaststroke for hours many hours i can't really remember now how many hours it was because i've told the story that many times that like that fish i caught it's just getting bigger and bigger i think it was probably four or five hours i don't know it we started it we started coming that far after dark and it, it was only a couple of hours of dark when we finally got ashore uh before the sun came up so how long's that down in the tropics i know five six hours whatever so um, I'll t- I'll tell that story another time because we're not trying to get into that now, but um, how big the target is becomes very important. If you've ever read 117 Days Afloat by Morris and Marilyn Bailey, there's a picture at the, I think it's at the very front of the boat that just looks like it's a black and white picture of, like, the ocean, like waves, and then the, the subtext underneath it, if I remember, says, like, the life raft that we were in is only 200 feet away in this picture, and it's completely indistinguishable, um, you know, for, for anybody that's trying to observe. I If it's an absolute flat, calm day, a life raft may be quite visible to a ship or a helicopter or anything else. If it's rough, you know, go whistle, it ain't gonna happen. So. Um, Yeah, be very aware. If you're going to get off the 30, 40, 50 foot thing that you were on and uh, get into the life raft, it's not better. It's worse. A few tasks, says the book, carried out before you abandon ship may save your boat. Emptying the water tanks, therefore turning them into buoyancy tanks. Closing the engine cooling water seacock disconnecting the raw water feed and using the engine cooling system to pump out the bilge. Wow, it just jumped in with some excellent advice. That is a good advice, isn't it? Empty the, empty the water tanks and then they'll turn into buoyancy tanks. Oh, you know what? I don't think I ever thought of that before. That's so obvious. Well, there you go. Already learned something. The engine water... Seacock is important. And on big, uh, like, power-assisted... Uh, power-assisted? On big stinkpot uh, super yachts that I've worked on, they have a completely separate intake um, inside the engine room that goes to the cooling system for the engines. Like, one of the boats I worked on, Camp Floor Lady, she had two V-24 two-stroke Detroit diesels. So I'm not getting confused here. There are 48 cylinders in the engine room. They are V-24 detroit diesels these are the kind of two stroke diesels that you hear in a locomotive but they're normally they're v16s these things are massive thousands and thousands of horsepower and they suck in and blow out a huge amount of water so if all the other pumps go down you can uh, flick the valves in the engine room and then these two engines if they're able to still run um, will move huge amounts of water out so that's a really good idea you could do it with a small boat but you know if you've got like a a 2GM (laughs) engine in there or something, a little single-pot Volvo MD1. It's uh, maybe not so much, but sure, very good advice. It continues, what you need to survive. To ensure your survival, you need the correct equipment with the right knowledge, and most importantly, a belief and will to survive. So I'll refer you then to the previous podcast about this subject. You'll find it um, now more clearly titled, um, uh, "Sea Survival, and uh, it's called The Will to Survive. yeah, to ensure your survival, you need the correct equipment, Bing, the right knowledge, Bing, and almost, and most importantly, a belief and a will to survive. It's such a weird thing. I saw that that podcast, probably because of all the machinations of me moving things from one provider to another and, and a mess of things recently that have uh, dropped my uh Listenership from like uh, two thousand people per episode to to like two or three hundred, it, it got very little traction, and it's a pity because it's probably the most important podcast I've ever done. Like the will to survive when you get like up against the wall, when the wall's in your face, when life is beating you overhead with the wall. Does that make sense? <laughs> um, when it's getting real serious, then you need to have the will to survive. Um, the four tenets of survival are protection location, water, and food. That's like loves, like a hierarchy of needs, right? You have to be able to keep yourself warm. You have to get out of the elements. You have to have water or you're going to die pretty quick, and you have to have food or you're going to die pretty slow. It's just no way around it. Um, to this end, the survivor requires, says the book, personal survival aids, life-saving appliances, and a grab bag. That's the equipment. The knowledge, what equipment you have, what have I got and what do I need is the only thing that should be going through your head. When you've said the words abandoned ship to your crew, what have I got? What do I need? Um, How to use the equipment you've got properly and have a strategy. Remember, strategy is a long term forward looking plan that gives you an idea of how you're going to deal with the situation before the situation starts your strategy for the race. Tactics are what happens when you start to leave strategy, <laughs> basically, and uh, decide, hey, I'm going to like bang the corners on this leg. Maybe it's, your tactic is to bang the corners. Um, your tactic is to get back behind the leaders when you realize that knocking the corners doesn't work. The tactics are not something you want to be taking into the life raft. You can be reactive to the de- developing situation, but it should be by having a strategy of applying knowledge and equipment. Um, to a situation which you have a basic understanding for. If someone gets hypothermic, it's not a tactic to refer to it. Uh, sorry, to to start to react to that. It's part of your overall strategy of keeping your people warm, watching for hypothermia, having some extra bits of clothing or something already in the bags. We want to have a strategy on how to survive. And lastly, uh, under the heading "Will to Survive," the book says: Believe you will be rescued. Avoid blame. Keep a positive attitude. There's no point taking any of that into the life raft. But as it will say a little bit later on, bear in mind the fact that after all the stress you've been through, the cold, the fact that the good advice is don't eat anything for the first 24 hours in the life raft to shock your body into a survival situation and start it in a kind of different mode of physiology that's going to more likely edge you towards uh, survival and success. Uh, it's very likely you, people are going to be getting angry and uh, starting to point the finger at each other in the life raft. As a skipper, your job is to just stop that. Don't ever think that like people need to have the uh, latitude to start shouting and screaming and jumping up down at each other or whisper behind people's backs on the boat or snide remarks or sarcasm and all the rest of it. If you're on a kind of voyage that's going to last more than an afternoon, your job is to limit and um, corral people into the best possible version of themselves. And uh, that can be in quite a direct manner if you need to. In the life raft, it can be very direct. Drills for abandoning ship, ha ha ha. To tell cruising sailors that they need to have drills for thing is pissing in the wind. But let's try it anyway. When was the last time you honestly did a drill for your storm sails? Yeah, You can either say yes or no, or you'll kind of hedge it and say, well, I know what to do, so I don't need to, which is bullshit. You have to drill for this stuff. You have to have muscle memory. You have to have everybody who's going to be on board know what's going on. Because if you don't, (laughs) then what happens is really bad things happen, right? Really bad things. It is not enough just that you know what's going on as the skipper. It is not enough, particularly if the thing that happens happens to you if you get injured during whatever leads to this vessel uh, you know needing to be abandoned it's no good to like start doing the drill when you're in the middle of the thing you have to go through it and even if that is you know if you can't do anything else because it's the winter time now you can sit on the toilet and work it out and write some notes and put them on the back of the toilet door and do whatever because it's incompetent and irresponsible to not do that because remember at the end of the day The buck and the deaths stop with you, right? Whatever happens, it's it's at your door. You're the skipper. Prior to abandonment, make everybody aware that you are preparing to abandon ship. Stay calm. Your manner will influence the crew. Those clipper boats, the people that are in the admin for clipper, they always said that the crews, which, you know, there's 20 people on the boat at any one time. There are 10 legs around the world people are flicking in and flicking back out. The The total crew for a boat can be 40 or 50 people. I think mine was 43 people, my entire crew, but they're coming and going. There were nine that went the whole way around the world. Um, the, the admin people at Clipper always said each crew takes on the personality of their skipper. And it's absolutely true. I'm not sure what that really means for my crew, probably that they're all in therapy, but uh, the reality is that how you act is going to lead the way for how they act. And... Uh, if you're losing the plot shouting at each other if you haven't brought the right equipment well then you condemn everybody else to your own misery number two activate the epub press the dsc distress button on the vhf and make a voice distress call right these are serious things that have to happen the distress call on a vhf has got a maximum range of about what 30 miles if you're lucky from the top of a 30 40 foot boats mast if it's nighttime you may get a skip and it'll go a bit further it does also mention here hf so if you've got a single sideband and you're doing it on there it could go much further as long as you know exactly what you're doing everything's dialed in right you're on 2182 you do it at the top of the clock those those clocks that you get which have um the little green and red like uh, quadrants on them on on clocks we always used to have our morning meeting on the ship and actually ashore when i worked for Outward Bound at 805 and that's because traditionally on board a vessel the top five minutes of the hour and the bottom five minutes of the hour are the time when you have radio silence to listen for distress calls so you would have somebody you know Trying to break into communications with whatever they've got on board their life raft or their sinking ship. In those five minutes at the top of the hour and the bottom of the hour, that's when everybody else, if they're responsible, goes quiet and then th- those signals can be heard. Our meetings always reflected that as a part of historical accuracy, but 2182 is not really recognized anymore. No one's doing anything with it. If you've got a DSC button and you're pressing that, well, then it's a digital signal that's going out. On VHF, channel 70 is the most common place that most people are gonna be doing this and that'll be received on your set as a a distress call bear in mind how many times you probably press the button on your own vhf to cancel everything but if it's if it's done correctly, if people look at their sets, then there's a good possibility of it being picked up further perhaps than a uh, voice call because it's such a short message. It, you know, It's not b- broken up in the way that a voice call is. It doesn't take five minutes to do a Mayday. It takes milliseconds for it to send it. It keeps repeating it. It's much more likely to get through. So if you don't know how the digital selective calling button works on your VHF or your SSB, time to go and have a look at the instruction manual and get into that. The EPIRB, the electronic position indicating radio beacon, is going to send a signal up to a satellite. And as long as you've got a new one, which is 406 megahertz with GPS and the 121.5 transponder frequency on it as well, you've got a powerful tool that you're going to be uh, using. Um, We'll talk a little bit more if the book doesn't. I'm sure it does about exactly how to do that because you've got a Secure it in a particular way to the life raft. You've got to make sure it's in the water. Don't keep it under your arm in the life raft. But activate the e-perb, Press the DSC distress buttons. Those things are the miracle genius change that we now have on board uh, our boats at sea, which revolutionises things. Rubber rafts. Yeah, Dr. Alan Bombard went across the Atlantic in one of those in the sixties. Go over to the Mariners Library, which I'm always plugging, but go over to the Mariners Library podcast. Look for uh, Alan Bombard's book. The it's called the it's called the Bombard Story. I have to remember that. And uh, a brilliant story then of him going across the Atlantic with no food, no water, in an eight foot Avon rubber raft. The difference between the technology he had available and us is these two things the epub and the uh and the uh dsc button. and it would add to that of course the ais if you've got one of those on your body or on the boat fire parachute rockets if someone is likely to be within 30 miles I would just put a little caveat into that. Fire the rockets anyway, right? There is no point dying with um, rockets unfired. That's ridiculous. How on earth are you meant to know if someone is likely to be within 30 miles? 30 miles is like five or six horizons away for you. There's no way you can know. There could be another yacht out there. I once responded to a sinking ship halfway between Antigua and Bermuda. I saw two flares. In the sky and although we were actually late on scene and another boat had gone in saved them and were on their way up to bermuda part of the a to b race a number of years ago um, all of those lot we never picked up any of their vhf broadcasts or anything because they were doing everything on handheld and we were too far away but uh i saw the flares fire them anyway just don't fire all of them just yet right but i would say a sequence of three rockets done every five minutes um, don't use up your entire supply, but you need enough to, like, say, hey, this is happening right now. It's the most likely thing that someone's going to see that. And if there's if they're in sequence uh, every five minutes or so, people will start to get the idea very quickly. That's where you are and that you need help. Number four, check that everyone has come to the muster point. Do you know where the muster point is on your boat? Do you have a muster point? <laughs> Probably not, right? Um Everyone's come to the muster point, especially if you've a large number of crew. Yeah, absolutely. Get everyone on board to put on layers of warm clothing. Extra clothing will not weigh you down in the water. Mm, okay. Initially, it will help you float. Yeah, very initially. You know, when you're at a boat, in a boat rather, at sea. These days, most people are wearing wool and polyester and uh, and, and things which will be warm when wet. I don't think I need to underline here the fact, do not wear cotton on a boat at sea. If you're in your bed and you've got cotton sheets and you've got a cotton sleeping suit, you know, like a gentleman's sleeping suit, as they used to call them on my boat, they picked them up in China and they're like onesies essentially, right? They're onesies that they bought in China. But being China, it said on the front of the packaging, "gentleman's sleeping suit. Um, But if you're in that and it's cotton, okay. But anything technical you're taking on deck or intending to, put on an emergency to get into a life raft should not be cotton cotton will carry nine times its own weight in water and your body will not once it's undergone a shell core shunt to move everything from the surface of the skin to the core to keep you alive there's nothing at the surface of your skin to warm up all that water it will very quickly lose uh, lose uh, all your body heat if it's uh, at all exposed to the the wind, it'll be even faster. So no cotton. And then, yeah, what they're saying here is correct, that it won't really weigh you down. Um, it, It could be very beneficial later on. Number five, waterproof clothing will reduce cold water shock absolutely and heat sapping water flow around your body. Use an immersion suit if possible. Keeping warm is a priority. Okay, there's two things there. If you've got an immersion suit on board, go for it. Immersion suits can often be bought very cheaply from the people who service equipment, safety equipment for offshore um, oil rigs and uh, and big ships offshore. And what you often find is that they'll be willing to sell it to you for like almost nothing if they've got some, but they'll want to like cut the feet off or something. And that's OK. Just say to them, no problem, but can I have the feet as well? And then you go and get yourself some vulcanizing uh glue and you stick it all back together again and that probably will be fine that's if you're really tight on a budget and it's either have it or don't have it based on the price if you've got the money to go and get them uh yourself the key thing being that the those 11 mil immersion suits will keep you warm even if you're literally in the water and never getting a life raft if you don't have that you can get something called a tpu which is a thermal protective sorry tpa tpa thermal protective aid oh maybe it's tpa sorry big pun Thermal protective aid, and it's like a big plastic uh, suit that you get into, like a kind of Tyvek suit type thing, and it stops water flowing in and out of your clothing when you're in the water. Otherwise known as once only suits, because you're only ever wearing it once, it's getting thrown away afterwards. But the difference between being in the water in just your you know, your, your cotton clothes, your jeans, and all the rest of it. And being in the water in even a TPU and some polyester clothing is, well, it's the difference between your life and your death, right? Number six, uh, check everyone has donned their life jackets correctly. Use a buddy system to speed things up. Inflate life jackets on deck. Only enter the water if you have to. Um, <clears throat> inflating the life jacket on deck if the boat is awash on deck may not be the best thing. It's very hard to hold on to the boat with an inflated life jacket. Bearing in mind, they have a volume of 15 liters when fully inflated. um, And that's a huge like extra grab for a wave to, to sweep you off the deck. If it's at all possible, uh, don't inflate them till absolutely required. But if it's that a wash anyway, then, you know, your auto inflates going to go off anyway. And I think in this situation, selecting to disconnect the bobbin and not have auto inflate available might not be to your best advantage. If a wave washes the deck and knocks you out, then you can't inflate your own life jacket, right? So Inflate them if you can. The other thing to mention here is that this is a good time to have one of those little cheap packets of the foam life jackets on board. You know, remember, we have these self-inflating life jackets uh, or manual inflate if you're a bowman that uh, you choose to have because they're low profile. They look cool. You know, it's kind of a a great thing to, to, to have on board and be safe. But in the event of a situation where you may be washed around on the deck, where your life jacket may be snagged on shackles and pins and broken stuff and whatever, if that bladder pops on your life jacket, then that thing is useless. So having some good foam life jackets on board is also a smart move. And those packets of them, particularly in the U.S., that coincide with the U.S. Coast Guard's regulations. They cost nothing. It's like less than 100 bucks. They don't weigh anything. They're a bit voluminous. Okay, fine. But find a place for them. Get them out of the way. In this kind of situation, chuck them in the life raft or give them to people on board. This is when then the low-profile self-inflating ones may not be your best friend. Wow, we did two pages. That's great. <laughs> Let me just make sure that my uh, thing is actually recording here. As I'm sat in an armchair talking to you, unlike my normal situation, and um. God, we're 40 minutes in. I've turned the page once. Oh well, you come here for me chatting. So what do you expect? Uh, number seven. It continues. What we number seven of what? Drills for abandoning ship. Number seven. Have a drink. Woo. Oh, non-alcoholic. And take anti-seasickness tablets. Even if you're like you've been around the block a million times, you may need seasickness pills in this situation because your body is going to be dragged down into a situation that you may not have been in before on a boat. You're going to be cold, you're going to be hungry. You're probably going to ingest quite a lot of seawater and what comes next, you may get banged around. You're going to have like basically PTSD once you get into the life raft from getting off the boat and then be in another stressful situation, which is going to be creating even more problems for you. So seasickness tablets probably at this point are something good to have um, because you do not want to be losing the content. Firstly, you're going to be incapacitated by seasickness, but also you don't want to be in a situation where you throw up stuff that you need for nutrition, right? You can't be throwing up the water that's in the life raft. There's not, I mean, the, the drinking water in the life raft. There's not that much going around. So you need, that needs to be ironclad and the seasickness tablets would be a good thing. The action, even in a marina of a life raft as well, is not great from my experience. Um, have a drink yet. Drink as much water as you can. And I shall mention now, if it's not mentioned later on, take as much water as you can into the life raft. Um, I, I crossed the Atlantic well, you know, many times, you know that, but uh, when I used to do it with uh, Challenger, the Volvo 60 we had, the built-in water tanks on that were very, very small. And we used to have 16 people on board and these trips could be 16 days across the Atlantic. So we had um, the, the water tower um, jugs, crafts, whatever called, those water bottles that go in like a typical office water cooler. You can buy the caps from them new. You can Pop them on and just have those things filled with uh, with tap water, no problem at all. You can easily move them around. I can tell you, that I've been through very cold conditions with them and very hot conditions. They are designed by the manufacturers to be moved around on trucks and all the rest of it. They're very very robust. We used to do many 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 trips, like 20 30 trips with a bottle before it was finally like beyond beyond use so it's getting so scarred up and and, and kind of uh, nasty looking that it was not to be part of the boat anymore but we kept all of our water in that we'd have like 30 or 40 of those and they're 18 liters each and we could put them in the bow we could put them in the stern we could move them around we could do whatever they were lashed down they were secured but going, my concept always was that if we need to go into the life raft, we can just put constrictor hitches on these suckers. We can put a long rope, put a long rope, constrictor hitch, long rope, constrictor hitch, you know, all the way along, and then put them in the water. And uh, they are then a method of uh, uh, like a sea anchor for the life raft, but they're also a fantastic water supply for those on board the boat if everything all the water is in your tanks and you've bled off your tanks so the boat won't sink what's what's the containers that you're going to be going into the life raft with this has to be planned out ahead of time you can't be like start filling things you know you could be five six days in the life raft how are you going to do that just with the stuff that comes in the life raft provisions like there's not that much in it even if you've got a an mca marine coast guard authority A pack life raft. It's only rigged for greater than 24 hours. It's not rigged for days and days and days. If you've filled it up with people and you're thinking that you're going to have enough to get by in there, it's really not going to be that way if you have containers that you can put into the life raft brilliant you don't want them sliding around the life raft with you so if you can have them outside in the water great which brings me to the point really which is they want to be only about two-thirds to three-quarters full so that there's an air space on top so they will float um having containers yeah very very beneficial in this situation it says priorities are oh no hang on we've got one one more here stand by Oh, two more. Sorry. Number eight, find the grab bag. Find the grab bag. Jesus, don't be finding the grab bag. You should know where the grab bag is. Whatever. We'll read it. Find the grab bag and emergency equipment checklist and as many useful extras as you can lay your hands on. Yes. Okay. I'm going to tell you a story. There's a. The film Where Eagles Dare. Is that the one where they go in and they're destroying the German heavy water plant? I believe it is in like Norway or something. And they, it's, I think it's like Clint Eastwood and who's the other guy? Oh no. Well, I don't know. I'm going to mess that up. But whoever's in it, is it Richard Burton? I think it's Richard Burton, is it? And Clint Eastwood in Where Eagles Dare? Write to CSMTheMariner at gmail.com and tell me I don't know. (laughs) But anyway, what happens is they go in, they blow up this heavy water plant, which is part of the production of a potential German nuclear bomb. I was lucky enough to listen to a radio interview with one of the guys that was on the real mission that was done during the war, and he recounted a very funny story, which is that The workers in the factory, a lot of them were Norwegian, and they had no quarrel with the Norwegians and didn't want them to get hurt. So on the way out, they informed the night watchman, hey, the the factory's about to blow up. We've set all these explosives. You might want to leave. Well, it's wartime and very important to this guy in his elderly years were his glasses. And this chap on the radio, this uh, SAS guy, I don't think they were called the SAS during the Second World War, but he Recounted a story that as they were exiting this factory, which is rigged with explosives, they spent some ridiculously long period of time trying to help this guy find his glasses. Okay, what can happen sometimes in sailing, what can happen sometimes in life is that you pick the wrong lane, you pick the lane of what you Might often do. You pick the lane that you think is important. The stress of the situation you're under makes you believe that this action you decided to engage in is somehow beneficial to what's going on, and you've got to put all your effort into it. It was silly for them to be waiting too long to help that guy find his glasses. In the end, they said to him, We've got to go, or we're all going to die. And his glasses were lost, right? They could have been 15 minutes further down the road. Onboard boat, and many times I've seen people get stuck in tiny, like, little like Mobius is going around trying to do something that they would normally do. Like, I've got to find my, you know, nav instruments or whatever it is to get into the life raft. Like, you're not going to be taking a sunset. What are you doing? Like, you could get stuck in that, or where's my left glove? Or where's this, or where's that? You want to, yeah, if you can have an emergency checklist, brilliant. Oftentimes, you know, they'll be laminated to the outside of the grab bag. Everything you need should be in the grab bag. Everything that you want should be on the list and you're not taking anything else. It's not like you need to remember you know, a, a cuddly toy and uh, your calculator and uh, you know, a heater. And you just need to have the basics to survive. And then there may be some things you've decided I'm going to have as well. And if you can chuck in some water and tuck in some uh, extra food, brilliant. Read the accounts by Steve Callahan, 77 Days of Drift. Again, the, the Morris and Marilyn Bailey, 117 Days of Drift. Particularly Morris and Marilyn Bailey, by the time they realize they're going to have to leave their little 36-foot boat, whatever it was. Was it not a little 36-foot Morris Griffiths? Um, the water was already up to their knees. By the time they got in the life raft with the dinghy, the boat basically sank. There is not much time on a modern boat. That's what that system which I designed, Nautilus system, was all about, is to give you extra time or indeed to keep the boat afloat. You could be tied to the back of a semi-submerged yacht in a life raft and be in a much better situation than you would be if you just got in the life raft. So uh, when it comes time for it, it's not find the grab bag and it's not look for extra things that you might need or want, the needs are in the bag, the wants are on the laminated sheet on the outside of the bag, and you're not taking anything else. Um, last thing here is stand by to launch the life raft in case the vessel has to be abandoned quickly. Absolutely right. People are very surprised how quickly boats sink. Have a look online and see. It's something I'd love to do on the YouTube channel, but where am I gonna get a boat to sink and, and then be okay to raise it? Boats go down fast, really fast. There's a lot of lead on the bottom. And as soon as that buoyancy is lost, you're pooched. Even if your buoyancy tanks, sorry, your ballast tanks. No, no. Well, for me, it'd be ballast tanks. But for everybody else, it'd be water tanks, all that lot. Even if they're empty, they're going to slow it, but they're not going to stop it, likely. The boat may have an underwater Uh, Weight, uh, the density of the boat is reduced underwater, but it still has mass. Obviously, it still has weight, to use uh, the colloquial terms. Underwater, it's going to weigh less, but the buoyancy of those couple tanks are not going to offset what it weighs underwater. Um, It's still going to go down like a stone. Okay. The little thing I was about to get into earlier, it says priorities are donning life jackets, definitely, sending the mayday, definitely, initiating the EPUB and launching the life raft. Absolutely, anything else is a bonus and like a bit of a luxury to be absolutely honest. Do not launch the life raft earlier than you need to because it is difficult to hold a raft alongside in a rough sea. I don't know if you've seen how heavy your life raft is, but when it's inflated, it's still the same weight, give or take, obviously the fiberglass shells are off. It's basically the same weight, but now it's much bigger. And so the sea is gonna get a hold of that and you've got problems. Launching and entering the life raft. I'm only going to do an hour on this because I've also got to go outside and uh, use a snowblower and try and get a little uh, path down to the road so we can go out after this, after Isaac's sleep, and go and get some food. <laughs> so we're going to be hitting pretty much an hour here. But what I'll do is I'll do another one tomorrow just to kind of keep it rolling and to try and uh, boost the, the the podcast back into some kind of popularity. Uh, we'll finish this page. Um, it says, launching and entering the life raft. Prior to launching the life raft, secure the painter to a strong point. Ask another crew member to check the knot. I recently tied my dinghy on the back of the boat. That was a year ago. Tied the dinghy on the back of the boat at the mooring. And when I came up on deck later, there was no dinghy. Yeah, A bowline that I tied had come undone because I had tied the bowling correctly. I'm not an idiot. I know I must have done it wrong. Now, for me, in that situation, because I'm such a chicken with cold water still, I uh, made a raft out of two long boat hooks, good traditional wooden boat hooks that we had on board the boat. I threaded them through the ends of the fenders, which we have on that 80-footer, which are quite big fenders, lashed them a little bit, took off my trousers and socks and shoes, got into the water with a life jacket on, and then paddled it across to where the dinghy had gone to the shore, which was only about 300 yards away, and managed to avoid getting my body into the water and feeling that I had failed entirely to tie a bowline, But I tied a lot of bowlins, okay? I know how to tie a bowline. The bowline came undone. So that's good advice. Be humble, be smart, get someone to check it. Uh, a round turn and two half inches is sufficient, but any knot holds that holds will do. That's not correct you need a round turn and two half hitches. Why? Because you can undo a round turn and two half hitches when it's under tension. Okay, that's why you're not meant to tie your fenders on with clove hitches, although I see it all the time, because if that fender gets stuck between the boat and the dock, particularly when you're dealing with vertical pillars, as you often are in North America, the way that they build their docks, if the fender gets stuck between the pillars and the boat's still moving forward, it will rip the stanchions off the boat. It will rip the guard wire off. If you've got two seconds to get anything undone, you can undo the two hitches and the round turn will go on its own and it's free unless, of course, you have got in hand a knife, but you probably don't wanna have a knife in hand when you're dealing with an inflatable craft, which is gonna potentially save your life. So I would say round turn on two off itches is exactly what you wanna do. It continues, check that the water is clear of debris or the raft may be damaged as soon as it inflates. Well, I would add to that, check that the side of the boat is not damaged. Even if it's, you know, you may be in a terrible situation where the leeward side of the boat is damaged and that's where you're gonna put the life raft over. So you're gonna have to get smart real quick, but yes, no debris in the water, but also no debris hanging off the side of the boat. That's gonna then create a problem when you go in. Number three, launch the life raft to the leeward, the downwind side of the boat. If you try and chuck it upwind, um, it's just going to be up against the side of the boat instantly. And when it inflates, it may be, uh, it may start to lift an edge. And if it's windy, that lifted edge won't be able to get its um, water pockets full. There's water pockets or there's plastic pockets hanging down underneath the life raft, which are intended to fill with water to ballast it somewhat. If it gets blown up onto the angled side of the hull, it will flip the life raft right over the boat and it's gone. It's just gone or it's wrapped around your rigging or it's on the deck or it's hit someone or whatever, or it's damaged itself or whatever. Do it to Leward. OK. Number three, launch. The, oh, number three did that. Launch the life raft to Leward. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll just say it again. Launch the life raft to Leward. Life rafts are heavy and difficult to manhandle. How much does a life raft weigh on your boat? The An eight man MCA uh, Life Raft, uh, APAC, so intended for use for greater than 24 hours, in fiberglass shells from normal manufacturer weighs 78 kilos, which is two and a half times that, let's call it 80, uh, 160 pounds. So that's a person. You're going to get a person, and you're going to throw them over the side. That's an eight man, okay? If you've got a couple of smaller ones, brilliant, but they don't do many that are lower than six, and you're still talking about 60-odd kilos there, which is still 120, 130 pounds. So if you can... Pick up your partner and throw them over the side of the boat with no problem. Um, you know you can maybe get a life raft over the side. I have moved life rafts so many times on my own, and yet pr- preparatory to the Newport Bermuda race in 2022, I had to get two life rafts off the boat of the uh, of the boat off the back of the maxi and just into the water. And my intention then was to drag them to the shore. Uh, with the dinghy, which I did, it worked, but just getting the those two big twelve man life rafts off the back of the boat was a major undertaking. Not really that it was like I wasn't strong enough to do it, but it, for me on that occasion, obviously, I'm trying not to scratch the back of the boat as they go down, and I was in a situation where it's got a kind of race boat cut out where the deck at the back is flush. Well, the, the back of the boat, should I say, is flush with the deck and the cockpit. So I'm only really like tumbling them end over end to slide down a slightly angled back on that on that boat. If you've got some situation where you've got to really get it up in the air, like it's in some kind of well or cockpit or uh, locker or whatever, you're talking about a major lift here, right? So be sure that you know how to do that and that you can do that and that it's possible. Um, it says a six-man life raft can weigh between 25 and 75 kilos. So I agree with the 75 for a proper big life raft. There are these ones which you're allowed to use on the Newport Bermuda race. I was blown away that this was possible. I think they're by a company called Wilson and they're in something about the size of a like a sports bag and they weigh nothing. And to my eye, they look thin, under-equipped and wholly unsuitable for the situation, particularly the Newport Bermuda race where you're in the Gulf Stream. But that's what they allow and that's what they have built and made, so there we go, but um 25 kilos. Uh, sort of 50, 55 pounds, that's very, very optimistic. If you're offshore and you've got a 25 kilo six-man life raft, what you have is a lilo, okay? It's going to blow up and it's going to be a, a like a, a chair for the swimming pool with a little drinks holder. It says launch them from as near to the stowage site as possible. Makes sense. You don't want to be stumbling across a boat that could be awash or damaged with that in your arms. It may need two people. No, it will need two people. Even if it's 25 kilos, you want two people because if you stumble and fall backwards on it, you'll crack a rib. Um, Launching the life raft to leeward will provide some protection from the prevailing conditions when boarding it. Absolutely. As we said, the prevailing conditions... Maybe sort of. M- remember, if you if you heave if you heave to, or if the boat's in any way broadside to the waves, um, there is a kind of flat patch, somewhat to leeward, and that can be very very useful. The freeboard of the boat is likely to be lower on the leeward side. Absolutely, we've talked about that when we talk about um, man overboard, that you recover them on the leeward side with the mainsail strapped to the centre to decrease. Um, Oh my goodness this picture below here is terrible but yeah you want to do on the leeward side the picture here which i do not agree with if you've got this book on page 95 is a mainsail right which has got all sorts of wiggles and waggles in its leech which means that the boom is not tight and a jib which is blowing out the front of the boat um, there must, their emergency must be that they can't get their sails down because there's a guy on the foredeck, tethered on, bless him, um, with a jib that is totally out of control. And the guy at the back of the boat, his arm and body are overlapping the image of the boom and the boom is clearly loose. So quite how that's meant to work, I don't know. But you want the sails down or in a very solid heave to position and uh, then l- launching it from leeward. If your life raft is on the foredeck, that's not smart from a sailing point of view for the performance and the, the way it adds to the pitch of the boat in any conditions. It's not clever when you want to go and get it to um, put it into the water. And it is a long way from the muster station. And if unless you're going to like throw it over the side and then walk the painter down to the back of the boat and all the rest of it, I think you're adding a lot of complications. If you can avoid having life rafts on the foredeck, I'd definitely take it. Uh, Lastly here, however, you may have to move the raft to a safer position, for example, because of a fire. Absolutely. Now, that's a very good point. If you do have a fire on board the boat and you're going to be leaving the boat, you're going to have to work out which way this fire is going to be blowing, because if you heave to, then the smoke and the heat is going to go to the leeward side of the boat. If you are at anchor or put a sea anchor out or anything like that, then it's going to be going over the back of the boat. Um, There are some occasions, I guess, where you'd muster on the foredeck, but still all the rules apply. It's still not a good place to be. Even when I think of the foredeck of my boats, which is 20 foot wide and 30 foot long, uh, it's still a very exposed place. I would still much rather be in in the cockpit if possible. Uh, take care not to slip and injure yourself or lose yourself or the raft overboard be aware of other dangers such as flogging sails this well maybe that's what you're referring to this picture (laughs) because they'll take your head off uh where are we doing for the time 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 here we go we're at oh 59 minutes we're doing pretty good okay launching the life raft pull the painter. It's likely to be up to 10 metres, 33 foot long. It is 10 metres long. When the painter is fully extended, a sharp tug will trigger the gas inflation mechanism. The raft will inflate in 30 to 40 seconds. You may hear gas escaping during that period and shortly after inflation. This is excess CO2 being expelled through the pressure relief valves, and it's normal. Okay, a few quick points there before we sum up. Um you know what we could do the next two pictures cuz they're connected it would be weird to kind of get into the next podcast um starting from there um yeah what's happening when you throw the life raft in the water whether it's in a valise or in a in a hard shell is um it basically it has inertia in the water if you pulled it gently, the painter wouldn't come out of the uh, box. It's just kind of tucked in there, and it goes through a rubber grommet to, to, to come out to the bit that you hold. Um, if you were to pull it gently through the water nothing would happen you need to pull it like in jerks because you're trying to pull imagine like a piece of rope is stuck under a heavy sail that's exactly it actually imagine there's a, a sheet or something stuck under a heavy sail you know there's no knots you know it's not snagged and you're just trying to get the rope out from under the sail that's the action jerk 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 and it will come out in in fits and starts until it's yeah 100 foot of line and then the last one uh it, you may find that the life raft like moves towards you in the water well that means you just need to give it a, remember it's on the leeward side so it's trying to drift away from you you just let it go a little bit further and then it's like trying to maybe hook a fish on a on a line right to set the hook on a on a fish you just give it that sharp jerk that pulls a little lever actuation inside and starts to discharge the co2 tank now it'll inflate and you should kind of know your raft well enough to know where the cylinder is, it's at the entrance, it's the thing that you step on to get into the life raft, if you're super competent about what's going on, it is possible to inflate it, step down into it, and it's completely safe to do that. As soon as it's basically inflated, lean over and close the cylinder. When Steve Callahan um, tells his story, you know those fish come along and uh, create such a problem for him that one of the one of the the rings of his life raft, one of the inflatable rings of the perimeter of the life raft, gets popped, and then he is trying to refill it with what's left in the cylinder. The escaping gas is because. What happens with these things is, say you like your life jacket, it's got a flotation of um, uh, 15 litres is the volume, and it gives you 150 newtons of lift, right? But the volume of the gas coming out of the CO2 cartridge is 17 litres, and it overfills by 10%. That 10% is what makes it go hard. If it just put 15 litres of gas into a 15-litre uh, bladder, then it wouldn't be that it wouldn't be that hard, right? It, it would It It would. would be floppy and flaccid. It does is overfills it. If your life raft is going to be solid enough to stand up to the ocean and you guys being inside it and all the rest of it, the hammer it's going to go through, it has to really over inflate itself. But that gas is a resource. And if the um, raft gets a hole in it, you're going to have to try and fix it, which we can talk about later on. And then you're going to have to try and Uh, refill it. And when you're refilling it, you're refilling it from that cylinder. There's no other way you're going to be able to do it. You can't reconnect anything. So in a perfect situation, remember some people, not least Morrison, Marilyn, Bailey, they sank in flat, calm conditions. Okay. So if they were doing their life raft, it'd be absolutely appropriate that when it starts to vent off the excess CO2, a knowledgeable sailor would just lean over the side and close off the cock on the uh, the, the CO2 cylinder, keeping that all-important extra gas for reinflation inside. We don't really want to talk about reinflation. It's like on the airplanes when you have your life jacket there and they talk about the top-up valves. Like, I don't want top-up. I want stay-up. But if something goes wrong, top-up may be necessary. Um, OK, turn the page and get those last two bits done before we go and <laughs> clear the snow from the front door. Launching the life raft to windward may make it more difficult to board. Sharp barnacles on the bottom of the boat may puncture the life raft tubes. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Good point. Um, Another picture with a sail up yeah the life raft can mount the side of the boat i once was doing i was when i was a younger more stupid man i don't mean exactly last week but uh i was working for out band in hong kong there i was the head of sailing which meant i did all the training for the other instructors on these 36 uh, uh, foot open catches and i was taking a pretty experienced skipper out and uh, i wanted to just test him on his man overboard and like the dunce i was I did something which used to be very popular in sail training and hopefully is not now. And that was I jumped over the side unexpectedly and then, you know, expected him to come back and get me. And he did indeed turn the boat around okay, but had no tactic as to how he was going to stop the boat. And basically, when I realized, hey, this guy's got no actual clue of how to conclude this evolution, I, as the boat's bearing down on me at, you know, five knots, it's a, it's an outbound training boat in mild conditions in Hong Kong. I made the decision to grab hold of the boat and then make sure I reconnected with the boat. I had a life jacket on everything. And, um, the side of the boat was covered in barnacles, tropical barnacles, and, uh, ripped myself to shreds across my stomach, um, as the life jacket rode up, as I got on board the boat. And it, it wasn't such a serious bit of injury, although you can get really nasty infections from from barnacles and things, but the distress that it caused the participants in the boat to see one of their instructors bleeding, I never forgot that. There are, of course, very serious stories of, I think it used to be quite traditional in the Navy for the captain just kind of like walk across the bridge in his uh, swimming shorts with a towel under his uh, uh, arm and then, basically throw himself off the side of the ship, expecting his officers to come back and, and look for him, do a Williamson turn and come back and look for him. But quite a few were lost as people didn't realize. They just thought it was, you know, off to the captain's hot tub or whatever it is they thought he was doing. But uh, barnacles on the bottom of the boat are a real thing. They're going to become important in this. Even to leeward. remember, they like, if it's to leeward and the boat is heaved to, then yes, the barnacles will be underwater. If the boat is just rolling with um, the sails down in a heavy sea, you're not gonna stop the barnacles from showing. So keep it it away from the side of the boat is the advice. And the first part of that is don't launch it to leeward. Uh, last bit I'm going to read for today. Uh, don't let the life raft drift away. In strong winds, it may become too difficult to pull it or even to winch it back to the boat, leaving you with no raft. It's not going to be just floating on the surface. As I said, it's got these big pockets underneath which fill with, I think, hundreds of kilos of water. Um, it's going to provide a very big um, like, impediment to waves that may be rolling across the surface of the ocean at that time. And What's more likely to happen than what's going to happen if you can't winch it to yourself is it's going to rip the painter off the life raft. Okay, that's one thing they do when they want to decommission life rafts. They cut out that bit of bonding in that area and then the life raft has a hole in it. And it's always the painter they cut off. You can. So I've seen quite a few of those off. It's just vulcanized on. It's not like that serious. So you can't be putting hundreds of kilos of pressure on it to draw it back to the side of the boat because it's 100 foot away. When it drifts away during the painter deployment parts that's meant to be like getting collected on the boat and secured and then you know maybe someone's taking it around a winch taking the slack off you and on a winch but it shouldn't be more than like 10 foot away from you um, if it gets to a point where it's too far away from you you want to get very smart very quickly about getting the people in the life raft and about getting the life raft disconnected from the boat before it does indeed rip the painter patch off and then the life raft that tube of life raft is going to deflate um, don't do things like clipping on and trying to slide down the, the the painter or any kind of jazz like that. Don't get too caught up with the painter line because you can get it wrapped around you and then that's your problem. but just be aware of the fact that it it, it shouldn't be your your tactic is not tie off the end of the painter and then let it drift away from your inflate itself because it could be a hundred foot away and uh, and then it and then it goes away. Um, and last part here it says stay out of the water, which is kind of where we came into this, not that it was planned, but stay out of the water the water. Well, cold water kills, but also uh pressure sores and salt sores and water in the life raft and all that is just miserable and can add to your difficulties, particularly if you're um you know going to be in there for quite a while. So yeah, okay, let's draw that to a, a close. I say my my personal situation I hope doesn't abandon the uh, the, the 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 spirit of what's going on here. I want to try and. Uh, commit this knowledge to you as much as I possibly can but I can only do an hour for today because of my responsibilities here but uh, we'll pick it up again I will promise to pick it up again tomorrow it will be on page 97 and it starts with boarding the life raft so if you've got any questions about that if there's anything you'd want to uh, add to it or, or or see to be changed please feel free to email me at CSM the mariner at gmail.com. That's our way to communicate. You can also go and have a look at the Mariner YouTube channel, which the last video we put out was a 57-minute professionally made video on winches and everything to do with operating winches. It was filmed on board the Open60 Falcon, so it gives you an idea of some big boat winches, and I do go into three-speed winches and uh, coffee grinders and that kind of thing. What I did when I released that video is I released it and then I thought, oh, man, you can now put a podcast on YouTube. So I was like, great, I'm going to do that. I'm going to put my podcast onto YouTube as well. Another place to kind of have people see it. And what it did was publish 92 episodes of the Mariner podcast after my one (laughs) video I put out. So of course, then it's not in any way trying to uh, promote uh, on the algorithm um, the video which I just put out. So it's had a cripplingly small number of people look at it. I think it's only like five or six hundred people. So, if you can, go over, have a look at the Mariner YouTube channel. It's, uh, it's a beginning of a new series of videos. We made them with the intention of just putting them on Patreon, but it's such a small group of people that I just became really frustrated that uh, other people could benefit from it. So took a choice to uh, move them over to YouTube, but it's just the standard Definition uh, version of it, like a 1080p version. If you want to see the 4K version, it's uh, it's there on Patreon, and uh, I'm putting more stuff on Patreon every day. The Mariners Library has got a new book this week. It's called White Sails Shaking. Uh, it's an anthology of sailing stories, which we're going to be getting through in the next couple of weeks. Twenty four separate stories, um, and you know, everything I put on there is because I think it's something that I would like to share with Isaac. That's my kind of vision with that. There's not many people listen to the Mariner's Library. It's just a couple of hundred people for each episode, but uh, I enjoy doing it and I will keep doing it as my own personal thing. And uh, same with these podcasts, just talking to you guys. um, I see the numbers going back up a little bit for this, but there's only a couple of hundred of us. I just want to share the knowledge, share the information and keep people as safe as possible. So if you can share. If you think there's some benefit here to what you've heard, please share with other people. Hey, I'm listening to this podcast. It's kind of useful. I think there's some good tips in there and then we can expand it out to other people. But um as always, wherever you are today, I hope that you are safe and sound and doing well. Um, it means an incredible amount to me to be able to be in the position to, uh, to, to share my knowledge with you guys and to, to, to keep the flame burning, even though it's the middle of winter here. And as I look out of my truck, it's got literally two foot of snow on top of it. But, uh, for now, for me, i got to go outside and use a snowblower. So I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.